This morning is April 20th. It is 2014. It's Resurrection Sunday. And our message this morning is called Resurrection is Not Enough. Oh my goodness. Today is what is considered sacred by Orthodox Christianity. And this pastor considers it sacred as well. Most of the world calls it by a pagan name, Easter. Could we put that slide up for a second? Here is the etymology of the word Easter. It comes from Astarte. It, if you Google it, the very first result that comes up says Old English Astarte of Germanic origin and related to German Ostern and East. According to Beatty, the word is derived from Astarte, the name of a goddess associated with spring. How on earth... Do the followers of the Jewish Messiah end up naming the Passover season after a springtime goddess? That's a great question. We're not going to cover it all today, but I would like to show you in the very next slide an idea. The word that shows up in the text to describe this time period some 29 times is in Greek, Pascha, in Hebrew, Pasach. And it means to pass over, to spare. This is the season in which we celebrate death passing us over. The proof of that is the king, the Messiah, stepped out of a grave. So that death passed over. In him, death has no hold on us. If we could go to the next slide. 29 times in the Newer Testament, in only 27 verses... We see this word Pascha. 100% of the time, it's translated Passover in most translations. And in one translation, an English translation, in 1611, the King James translation, in Acts 12.4, they translated it Easter. Because the men who were translating the King James Bible recognized that we were talking about springtime, but the thought of a Jewish festival was so reprehensive to them, so far from their frame of mind, that they inserted an English word for the time period called Easter. That got handed down to us. It makes no difference to me what you call the day, but it may make a difference when the story is told 200 years later. Could we move forward one more time? We live in a society at the moment where churches say that we have Easter celebrations. What is descending upon the church world today is a circus that has corrupted Christendom. This is last year, one of the most popular pastors in the United States. I'm not picking on him. But to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he brought the Jonas brothers in. And what do you do if last year you brought the Jonas Brothers in? What do you do this year? Every year we have to up the ante, right? Every year we have to go further because the resurrection of the dead was not, was not enough. So instead, we have opportunities. Let us see some of the opportunities. Well, in 2013, lots of churches did helicopter egg drops. One that I'm familiar with spent nearly $10,000 to fly over a field and rain down Easter eggs upon the children. 
Because what better way could we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ than by have a bunny suit spit out eggs upon the children? We wonder why Christianity is in the shape that it's in. Not to be outdone, everything is bigger and better in Texas, right? Come on, there's not a Texan in here. Everything's bigger and better in Texas. There's a church in Corpus Christi. And they give away cars at Easter time. This woman, God bless her, I'm proud. I'm excited for her. She won a car at last year's Easter celebration. They advertised their service as a multi-million dollar giveaway. It's a little bit like going on The Price is Right. Just no Bob Barker. Well, are we just a small church jealous of what these big churches are doing? No, I want to know if we have superhero themed services to draw our kids. If one pastor in the Northeast is giving away an AR-15 to make a political statement in his services. Doesn't it beg a question? When did Jesus rising from the dead not become enough? When did we get to that place? I want to share with you a excerpt from the Washington Post yesterday. I know it surprises you that I read the Washington Post. There's one room in the house you have to keep literature. I'll let you guess as to what room that is. This was written on April 18th. I'm sorry, not 18th. On the third day, he rose again. That line from the Nicene Creed is foundational to the statement of Christian belief. It declares that after three days, Jesus died on the cross. He was resurrected. A glimmer of the eternal life promised to believers. It's the heart of the Easter story in seven little words. But how that statement is interpreted is the source of some of the deepest rifts in Christianity. And a stumbling block for some Christians and more than a few skeptics. Are you following me so far? That Nicene Creed from the third century that says, on the third day he rose again. What a troubling statement. I mean, it's so divisive, you know. Did Jesus literally come back from the dead in a bodily resurrection as many traditionalists and conservative Christians believe? What are you if you believe in a bodily resurrection? Oh, a conservative and a traditionalist. It's almost like the 15th chapter of Corinthians was removed from every Bible in the world that says we are to be pitied more than all men if there is no resurrection. It's almost like the first chapter of Revelation in the fifth fifth verse that calls him the firstborn from among the dead has been removed from their Bibles. Maybe John 20, 27 where uh, Thomas touched his side and the holes in his hands has been removed from the Bibles. But then again, she's not quoting the Bible, is she? She's quoting the Nicene Creed, which, by the way, got this right. But when the Bible ceases to be our authority, when anything you believe becomes passable, well, what happens if you adamantly believe that you have wings? What is the difference between sincerely believing and sincerely being deluded? There was a time when I ran from a parking lot at Beaumarche Mall in Baton Rouge, Louisiana towards service merchandise. It was a long time ago and many pounds ago. 
I stepped upon the pavement near the window, which was actually brick pavers. And because back in the day, all us cool guys wore penny loafers, I slipped. I fell on my belly and I slid straight into the glass. I could believe with all of my heart that there was no glass there. It would not change the reality of the glass that was there, whether I could see it or not. Belief alone in something is not enough. People believe in unicorns. They can describe them. They can draw them. But that does not mean that they exist. We're in a day where we all just kind of smile and say, well, whatever you believe. Did Jesus literally come back from the dead in a bodily resurrection? What a question. As Easter approaches, many Christians struggle with how to understand the resurrection. How literally must one take the gospel story of Jesus' triumph to be called a Christian? Can one understand the resurrection as a metaphor? Perhaps not even believe it at all and still be a follower of Christ. Can you imagine any century in which this article could be written and all of America would not protest? This struggle keeps some Christians from fully embracing the holiday. A 2010 Barna poll showed that only 42% of Americans said that the meaning of Easter was Jesus' resurrection. 42% understood that Easter was supposed to be about Jesus' resurrection. Could that be because we named it after a foreign god and we practiced pagan rituals? Just 2%, somebody say not one and not three, but 2%, 2% identified it as the most important holiday of their faith. 2% of the people surveyed in 2010 said that Resurrection Sunday was the most important holiday in their faith. Let's turn that number around. 98% of Americans believe that some other holiday, which used to mean Holy Day, is more important. I bet it's the fat guy in the red suit. But who knows? At this point, could be the tooth fairy. Could be almost anything, couldn't it? Because it doesn't matter as long as you believe. What if your belief is wrong? The Proverbs say that there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end it leads to destruction. First John, I'm sorry, the Gospel of John, the 14th chapter and the 6th verse, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Either Jesus Christ tells the truth or he doesn't. And he describes himself as the only way. How is it that we get to a state like this? By the way, you know that this writer... Practicing something liberals call a critical theory. Meaning it doesn't matter whether what you're saying is true or not. Simply challenge their position over and over and over and over. And eventually you will weed out those that don't believe. She couldn't leave the article without quoting biblical scholars. Now, I would think to be a biblical scholar you would have to believe the Bible. Retired Episcopal Bishop John Shelby Spong. I'm going to fight the temptation to call him Sponge. Spong. He's 82 years old. His emphatic answer of do you have to believe in a physical resurrection is no. I don't think the resurrection has anything to do with a physical resurrection, he said. 
I think it means the life of Jesus was raised back into the life of God, not into the life of this world, and that it was taken out of that, out of this, that is his presence. Number one, that I don't understand the sentence. Number two, where would you draw that from in the scripture? Certainly hasn't read first and second John. Anybody that doesn't say Jesus came in the flesh is of the Antichrist. Just tear those books out along with the others that I've mentioned. He says, he goes on to say, I tried to help people get out of that kind of literalism. But you don't think you do it in a single sermon. You need time to lay the groundwork for people to process it and ask questions. You have to begin and then build on it. It's almost like it's a subtle or crafty process. I try to help people get out of that literalism. Is the biggest wickedness facing the world today that we take our Bibles too seriously? I don't think that's our problem. Spong's Bible studies are enormously popular, she goes on. I bet they are. When people hear it, they grab onto it, Spong said. They could not believe the superstitious stuff. And they were brainwashed to believe that if they could not believe it literally, then they could not be a Christian. There we go. The issue, in its very essence, has always been about one thing. Do we believe in the supernatural? With God are all things truly possible. How can you believe in an incarnation and cannot believe in a resurrection? How is it possible that you could believe that miracles... We're done in one day, but God suddenly changed and can't do them in any other day. Most people have more supernatural faith that the devil moves than God moves. And this is a sad state. So it's Resurrection Sunday. I know what we'll do to fix it. We'll rent helicopters and we'll rain down eggs. Could you turn with me to Luke 16? Lest you think I'm being too hard on pastors... Nobody criticizes pastors like other pastors. Lest you think I'm being too hard on them, let me acknowledge up front that I fully believe that there are some good-hearted men who are trying with all of their heart to reach people. And they think, you know, if we do egg drops, if we do plasma TV giveaways, if we descend into some kind of strange circus world then maybe people will come to the service and I can preach salvation. Of course, if you win people with a message like that, what have you won them to? If people come to Jesus to get a plasma television, then what do you do next week? In fact, if people come to Jesus out of selfish ambition, how do you then teach them to be self-sacrificing? Is that not a fair question? You know... I did spend years in the car business. I'm familiar with a bait and switch. Most people think it's a deplorable tactic. Unless, of course, we're claiming people get saved. Let's bait them and ply them with hopes of greed. Let's bait them and ply them with endless entertainment. And then when they receive Jesus, we'll switch it on them and tell them about their need to give up their life. Or maybe we won't if there's enough people in the congregation, you know? I don't think bait and switch is what Jesus had in mind. 
He told people from the very beginning what his intentions were. Are you in Luke 16? Let us pick up in the 19th verse. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, are you asking one another what I meant when I said in a little while you will see me no more and then after a little while you will see me? That's John 16:9, isn't it? I meant to be in Luke. Why didn't y'all tell me? What's wrong with you people that you can't speak in church? We're going to move to too much faith in pulpits in a minute. We like to elect leaders to be holy for us. We like to elect great men who speak well to speak for us. All the way back to Sinai, we've been crying out, send somebody else, Lord. I'm too scared. But we are the body of Christ. In fact, let's just get to the heart of the message since I can't find Luke in my Bible. Wow, I'm not going to win any theological awards for this one, Matthew. What a pair you and I are, huh? At least Matt can sing, right? What is the proof of the resurrection? Well, a few of us have been to the garden tomb and stood in it and seen that he's not there. But then the skeptics descend and say, it's not the garden tomb. It's really the one that the Roman church built a giant tomb over. (laughs) What is really the proof? The proof is that Jesus has resurrected your life. You have gone from death to life. And if he can take you from death to life, then you can believe that he went from death to life. So let me ask you, have you ever seen a sign? I would say I am one. How many of you are a sign? Church, we don't need 60,000 chocolate eggs to drop from the sky if we had 60,000 Christians that had the sweet, savory spirit of Jesus Christ. You would not need somebody to dress up like a Power Ranger or a superhero to come and entertain the Christians in your church and then squeeze in Jesus as a footnote to satisfy critics if we have the power of the Spirit among us. Are you now in Luke 16? You all beat me there. Do you see? Church, we should be led by the Word of God and not just a pulpit. Here comes the 19th verse. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. I wonder if he won a car at a church Easter celebration or had a plasma TV on his wall given to him by a pastor. What do the poor pastors in India do? You know, my friends who do not have shoes, what do, what do they do if the method of evangelism is to ply people with wealth, then what do those without wealth do? We need to repent of this terrible gospel of greed. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Matthew and Cassidy just found out that in Kenya they don't let dogs in their house. They're worried that if they die, the dog would clean up the body. This poor guy was surrounded by that kind of testimony every day, right next to a guy that had everything that he could possibly want. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. 
in hell, I bet the lady who wrote that Washington Post article finds hell divisive as well. In hell, where he was in, what's that word? See, if you take the Bible literally, and I don't know how you can be a Christian and not, then hell is not simply a state of mind. It's not your first marriage. It's not that stepson that you can't wrangle in. All of those things may be an extension of the kingdom of hell, but there is an actual hell, and it's a place of torment. Let's imagine that we rain down Easter eggs on people. We give them plasma televisions and give them a car to drive home with all their bounty in. But in the end, they're driving straight to hell. What good would that be? Now, mind you, everybody who does these things says that they preach the gospel. I'm not picking on them all. I actually know some really good people that participate in this stuff. You know, last year they had Tim Tebow come to their church. They're good people. But you have to wonder what the difference between drawing a crowd is and drawing people to Jesus if you have to use celebrities to do it. This is how you end up with chicken cams and giraffes and wife-carrying contests. The church becomes a circus because it's focused on something other than Jesus Christ. It exalts something other than Jesus Christ. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In hell where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in the water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. I heard a man say recently that if you feel that you have the call of an evangelist, you have to hear the people calling you from the fire. If you really believe that people are dying and going to hell, do we have time to dress like rabbits honoring the resurrection of Jesus Christ by calling it after a springtime goddess? Now, you might be sitting there sinking lower and lower in your seat. Let me let you in on a conversation the Stevens have all the time, okay? So, are we going to have a Christmas tree this year? You can have a Christmas tree in the house if you want, baby. We don't drag it in the church. Why? Because Christmas trees are overtly pagan. We can have a pagan tree in our house, but we can't have one in the church. You may decide to tolerate it in our house. Ultimately, it's my decision, but we will not force people in the church who would be offended by it to participate in that. I won't do it. So, well, what about chocolate bunnies? If Abby would like to eat a chocolate bunny, feed her a chocolate bunny. But I will not drag a chocolate bunny in and pretend to masquerade it around as something to do with Christ. Say, oh, some of you say, Pastor, you participate in pagan revelry in your home. What a sinner you are. Yes, I'm that and a whole lot more that you don't even know about. Others of you go, what's wrong with this guy that he's threatened by these things? After all, they don't mean that to us. I leave to your conscience decide where you want to take your stand. Friends, but certainly you have to take a stand somewhere. On the one hand, all the days of our week are named after pagans. Most of them pagan gods. 
On the other, our most sacred holidays have been adjusted on a Roman calendar to honor and glorify pagan rituals rather than Christ. And yet, if you can't find and celebrate something in it, then what do you do with the scripture that says to the pure, all things are pure? I'm not saying that there is no way have a resurrection egg or a chocolate bunny if that's your deal. I'm saying what's wrong with the church that the resurrection is not enough? What's wrong with us that being raised from the dead no longer excites us? No longer is enough to draw a crowd. No longer is enough to revive a soul. Now what we need is a plasma TV. This is not a statement about the timeless gospel. This is a statement about the fickle, wicked heart of human beings. We always quote those scriptures that Paul said to Timothy about in the last days. They will raise up for themselves teachers who will teach what their tickle or tickle what their itching ears want to hear. But we're sure we're talking about someone else always, aren't we? Have you ever met the church that says, hey, by the way, we are here to tickle ears. No, we never admit to those things. But ever so often, the Walmart mentality of the customer is always right, and that's what it's become. The church of business and the people its customers, rather than a living, breathing organism that is the body of Jesus Christ, testifying to the resurrection not one day a year, but every day of the year vis-a-vis your lives. See? When you're walking around and people are in death and you say, I used to be subject to that, but by the grace and mercy of God, I've put it underfoot following Jesus. I buried my old life. And I've walked out in the resurrected power of Jesus. Then you don't need a power ranger one day a year to make Jesus something of importance to people. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things. While Lazarus received bad things, but now he is comforted here while you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm is fixed. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now is the time that you can cross over, friends. Right now. You can be in death. And say, I've seen the resurrected power in my brothers. I've watched them put down addiction, put down sin. And it wasn't by their strength. I knew them when they were habitual sinners. But the power of Jesus Christ has set them free. And you can cross over now. But there comes a day when you can't. Maybe we'll drop elephants out of the sky next year. Where does it end? And why did none of the apostles use such methods? We wanted to raise money for the worldwide campaign for Christ. Maybe we could do magic tricks. See, when we begin to rely on something other than the Spirit of Jesus Christ... We open the door for charlatans, for parlor tricks, for things that are masquerading as the gospel and are really no gospel at all. And the people love it. But there is a terrible 
terrible truth. The way that you live now will absolutely determine your eternal standing. This has been dismissed in theological circles. It's been dismissed from the standpoint of, well, you can't work to be saved. No, my friend. But if you live a life of pleasure and excess and luxury now, you are denied that in the age to come. There's a caste system in the heavens. God takes the poor, the downtrodden, the outcasts, the widows and the orphans who call on His name and He exalts them above the rich and powerful and celebrities in the life to come. And we've acted like this is not even in our Bibles. The rich man at least understood the point of the story. In verse 27, he answered, Then I beg you, Father... Send Lazarus to my father's house. Listen to him. He still thinks Lazarus works for him. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. When's the last time you attended a funeral? And the pastor said, this gentleman has most certainly missed the kingdom of God and is in torment. Have any of you ever attended a funeral like that? You ought to preach one. It's a special experience. People get saved, though. In our hearts is bound up eternity. God has put it in us to know that there is a truth and to yearn for it. But the world offers a lie. And some, because they love the lie, cannot receive the truth. So we'll hire some limp-wristed, weak-hearted pastor to stand up and say, oh, we'll meet this brother in the resurrection of the dead. So we've reduced the resurrection of the dead to a backstory that takes second place to a rabbit, to eggs, to the Power Rangers, to AR-15 giveaways, to whatever kind of circuitry that the modern church can come up with. But if you really believe that some will rise to be rewarded and some will rise to everlasting contempt, as the 12th chapter of Daniel says, how could we take such a carnal approach to such a serious subject? How many of you, if you were describing the electric chair to your children, would do it with chocolate rabbits? How many of you, if you were describing what the death penalty is imposed upon someone, how many of you would do that with felt figures on a blackboard? Not knocking the Methodist Sunday School. It's one of the best in the world. But I'm asking you, with such a serious subject, can we really afford to be so trite? This is not the Sunday a year where we preach the resurrection. We preach the resurrection every Sunday. Amen. And we try to live it every day. Amen. And even when we fall, it works out to be a testimony of the resurrection because the righteous man can fall seven times, but he's able to get back up again. God will raise him back up again. Amen. Abraham replied, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, 
even if someone rises from the dead. When was the resurrection not enough? In the mind of a carnal man, it's never been enough. If you cannot accept the things that come from God because you cannot accept the Spirit of God, then all the things of God are foolishness to you. The mind of sinful man is corrupted. The way that Romans says it in the 8th chapter and 5th verse is like this. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires. You know what would be really cool? is if we could go to church, Matthew, and we could just appeal to the sinful nature. Then it'd be fun. It's what my sinful nature wants to do. Let's just incorporate whatever your sinful nature wants to do into the church, and we'll call it Christ. By the way, that's how you end up calling Passover Easter. It's what the people were already doing. It's what they already wanted to do. When we put a Bible in their language, let's just call it that. It'll be fine, you know. Little syncretism never hurt anybody. Except that 1611 till now, now people actually believe it's the name of the holiday. And only 2% of Americans think that it's the most important of the holidays in a nation that was founded on a Judeo-Christian ethic. Say what you want to about Thomas Jefferson. The man never in his lifetime missed a church service. I bet he knew what... Resurrection Sunday was, even if he did terrible things like own slaves. Church, we've always been a glaring contradiction. We've always been broken, weak men that rose to new heights in Christ. The resurrection is not a metaphor for us, it's a reality. He physically rose and inside of us now, he takes us from death to life. But if you don't change now, you'll never change later. Let me finish Romans 8 just to do it. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. So is it a judgmental thing to say that if the church is fascinated with egg drops, fascinated with car giveaways and plasma TVs, then either that's what the Holy Ghost wants to do to the world or the church is off base. Well, if God wanted to give you a plasma television, why did he send his son to die for you? And he didn't just call on Panasonic to solve your problems. Church, if we water this down to give the people what they want, or in the neck of the woods I come from, laissez le bon temps rouler, let the good times roll. Boy, the French, the free thinkers... They gave us laissez-faire, let the people do as they wish. They gave us let the good times roll. Except they roll straight to hell. They roll straight into hell. Do you care if your neighbors go to hell? Does it bother you that among all of those that Barna surveyed, the absolute most biblically illiterate, the ones who scored the worst in every area, We're 18 to 25. How many of you think we're raising a generation of superstars for the kingdom worldwide? Yeah, not a hand went up. Now let me ask you, whose fault is that? Every hand ought to go up. We have a responsibility not to let the fire go out on our watch. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life 
in peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. See, cars and TV giveaways and bunnies, they fail to address the issue of the sinful nature. And appealing to the sinful nature for salvation is a vain hope. It's been trying to save itself since our patriarch Adam first donned a fig leaf. You realize that man's first reaction to sin was a religious effort? Cover your nakedness with a fig leaf. Let's at least look religious, look covered. Of course, what was he doing while he covered himself with a fig leaf? Anybody? Hiding from God. Might not even have to hide from God if you make your service so reprehensible that he doesn't show up. You ever read the first chapter of Isaiah? He said about feasts that he demanded take place, that his soul hated them. You know why? Because the people turned them into something that was reprehensible. You want to honor Christ? Do it with your life. Now, if you go home and you got a chocolate bunny or you got an egg, I'm not throwing a stone at you. I don't know for sure that none of those things are in my house. I'm telling you that if that's what this has become to you, then we've sunk to a sad state and need resurrection power to pull us out of what is certain death. Let's talk fig leaves for a moment. Y'all are awful quiet. Curtis, you doing all right? You dress well today, brother. It's an inspiration. Don't expect it out of me, church, but I do like it. I recognize style when I see it. Brother Michael and I are shopping at the same stores. He buys large and I buy double X. Wolfgang Simpson is a German Jew. He had a dramatic supernatural experience. It brought him into the reality of Yeshua. This quote is not mine. You hear it all of the time, but I didn't originate it. It came from him. The image of much of contemporary Christianity could be summarized as a holy people coming regularly to a holy place on a holy day at a holy hour to participate in a holy ritual led by a holy dressed man in holy clothes for a holy fee. How interesting is that? A holy place called a church. Is that biblical? Anywhere in the Bible does the word church refer to a building ever? Never. But we go to church and we don't have to be the church anymore. Where is your church, people ask, and the response is not right here. You're looking at it. I'm the best representation of Christ you'll meet today because His Spirit lives in me. We would consider that arrogant, but not consider the alternative is to say... Don't look at me, go look at the building. It's pretty. Its programs are great. It's like looking at a whitewashed sepulcher then. You are the living, breathing, walking advertisement for Jesus Christ. And if we did our job, we wouldn't need egg drops. By the way, I like egg drop soup. I just don't like it for a resurrection service. A holy day. What makes today more holy than any other day? So, well, this is the day that Jesus was raised on, except it's not. It's not. In the third century, we divorced 
the Jewish calendar from what is now called the Gregorian calendar on purpose to make sure that those two days never lined up again. That's as satanic as it gets. Say, so, oh, but we meet on Sunday because it's the first day of the week and on the first day of the week, Jesus rose from the dead. No, it was on the first day of the week they came to the tomb and he wasn't there. So, well, you know, Eric, what are you saying? You don't want to meet on Sunday? No, I'm an American. I meet on Sunday. You know, I admit to the rest of the world I'm a dirty Sabbath breaker. What makes today holy? And if today is holy, what about every other day? Is Monday less holy? Don't act like you don't think it is. You go to work on Monday. Do you approach it the same way you go to church on Sunday? I mean, do you walk in with a smile, tell your co-workers, praise God, glory, I'm just here for the presence of God today? Is that how you walk into Home Depot? Is that how you walk into your workplace? Whoa, I just came to praise, hoping to get in the presence of the Lord today, sister. Come on now. No, we don't. No, we go to a holy building on a holy day, huh? What would happen if you lived out there like you practice in here? You know another thing Barna said? Given the number of Christians that say that they invite someone to church on Sunday, especially on what he calls Easter Sunday, if even the minimal percentage of 1% took you up on the offer, church attendance on Easter in the United States would not fit in any of the buildings. Do you hear that? What does that mean? It means that most people must not be inviting people. We don't tell them about it. We don't invite them because they already know, except they don't. Look around you. They don't. 18 to 25 years old scored worse than 2%. Worse than 2%. Holy hour. If this hour, or in here, three hours, is more holy than all the other hours of the day, what does that mean when you pull out of the building? Do you become unholy? Well, if you become unholy when you pull out in the parking lot, I assure you, you were not holy in here. Holy ritual. <laughs> if you notice two people can sit through the same service and one be moved by the Spirit of God and the other snore. So is it a holy ritual? In as much as the people want holiness. You know, we can pick on the way some churches do it, but the truth is, it's not about the ritual. It's not about the format. John Wesley moved people. Today, you can go to a Wesleyan Methodist church and maybe you are, maybe you're not moved. The Assemblies of God was founded because the Spirit of God was moving people. But you can go to a church today, it's not about the ritual. It's about the people's hunger and their desire. How do you hunger and desire more? Well, you need to be around people that are. You need to see that it's obtainable. You need to believe in a resurrection, friends. A holy man. How many times have you been disappointed with that one? If you came here looking for a holy man, there's only one way we define holiness. When you do what is right, even when it hurts. If you're looking for a long list of things I don't do, you'll be sadly disappointed if you walk around with me for a week. I don't hide anything. And I do all kinds of things that the church world says is sin, but I can't find it in the Bible, this sin. And I'll keep my own counsel on the Word of God when it relates to their additions and subtractions. 
James defines sin as the good that you know to do and do not do. When we talk in those terms, how are all of my friends that are abstaining from everything in the world doing? Guys, it's time for the church of the living God to rise up. No, we could sing songs about the resurrection, but it wouldn't matter if the people's lives had not risen. We could tell people that we had found the Shroud of Turin or some other ridiculous thing like that. And maybe you could use DNA testing and prove that it was Jesus because God sent you a sample or something to the lab, right? What difference would it make? It wouldn't matter what happened. Churches are already raining plasma televisions on people. But if they don't see changed lives, they don't see anything they really want. They just see more junk they're entitled to. First Timothy 2 and verse 5 is worth considering. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You cannot elect me to mediate for you. You cannot use this building as a shelter against your eternal state. There is one who mediates between you and God, one and one only. Since I met him, I've tried to make the introduction to everybody that I meet. One mediator. I'd like you to consider that if what we're really doing is saying one man has special access, that if one man signified by a collar or a robe is better than everybody else, that if one church building is where it's at, if one day of the week is better than the others, then what about everything else? My walk is not dependent upon special clothes, places, or people. It's dependent upon the work of Yeshua and a baptism into His presence and character daily. Have you ever considered that by calling our buildings churches, by adopting religious dress, by holding special services, by raising up special holy men, we're reconstituting the very barriers that the incarnation broke down? You know, the reformers had interesting things to say about this. Luther said this to every believer in an open letter. All Christians are truly priests. And there is no distinction amongst them except as to office. Everybody who is baptized may maintain that he has been consecrated as a priest, a bishop, and the Pope himself. Do you believe that? Are you a kingdom of priests? Are you a kingdom of spectators paid to show up? See, if you're a priest, you have a responsibility. If you believe that God has saved you and that He would have saved just you, that He loved you enough to die for you, then how can we not represent Him to the rest of the world? Okay, so two of you are bought into the idea that you represent Him to the rest of the world. We'll speak to just you two, Valerie and Eric. Valerie, Eric, if you represent Him to the rest of the world, what's the very best tool you could have? I know what we'll do. We'll go to the candy section at Walmart because candy is the eternal means of transmitting the gospel to the human race, right? No. It's Domino's Pizza. No. It's building a gymnasium. 
either they're filled with His presence so that people see Him in them, or they're not. Either you can say they were once, and I know them, it's hard to think about them in these terms. I don't even want to talk about what you once were. Let's just call it grave living. They now walk on a whole different plane. Because Jesus is alive and He's alive in them. He's alive in bodily form. Not just in them, He's actually in a glorified body at the right hand of the Father. The body of Christ is the people. And the world will know about Him from us, not from a few elected leaders speaking for us, justifying their existence by the number of people they can draw into a building they call the church. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That is the picture of the resurrection. Has your life changed? Has it changed so thoroughly that it would be like walking up and seeing a grave with nobody in it? See, you're supposed to be that. Let me apologize in advance. Like... Like Jim Elliott said, I'm sorry that I represent such an amazing God and I stand before you so ordinary. I don't have all of this mastered, but I certainly know the truth when I see it. And I'm doing everything that I know how to do to walk in it. And I'm seeing people saved regularly and baptized regularly and baptized in the Holy Ghost, and I have never resorted to bribing somebody with an Easter egg or a donut or a pizza. The eternal gospel of Jesus Christ has got to be more than just food and drink. One reason people don't know what Easter, which is rightly called Passover, is really about is because they don't truly see new changed lives now that death has passed over. They see religion and fig leaves and gimmicks. Not sanctified, resurrected, powerful resurrection Christians. So what are you? (laughs) Wow. If you can't testify in a church like this, where can you testify? Who in here is a sign of the resurrection? Man, if we practice standing up in here, what would happen if we walked into our workplace with that same kind of spiritual fervor? Do we quench the Holy Ghost for people's sake? No, no, we would never do that. But do we? Are you as fiery out there as you are in here? I know you think it's easy for me. Me and Matthew, bless our little hearts, we're full-time pastors. We were full-time Christians a long time before we were full-time pastors. Those of you that have known us since we got born again, you can testify I'm either lying or telling the truth. I've never been on a job where I did not let every person there know on a regular basis what the fuel for my fire was. How about you? Or we could just give them an Easter egg. I mean, it's up to you. How about Corinthians 15? Turn to Corinthians 15 and let's go to verse 50. What have I upset y'all? I upset even my closest friends regularly. It happens. Sometimes I upset myself. It's like a woman told D.L. Moody, I don't like your methods of evangelism, sir. He said, ma'am, I don't like my methods of evangelism either. How do you do it? Well, I don't. Well, I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. I'm not asking you to like me. I'm trying to spur you on to something more than Easter eggs. 
I don't want this to be a vain, dry ritual. Not on my watch. See, I love him. You need to understand that about me. I may have calluses on my hands, wear cowboy boots and drive an offensive diesel pickup truck. But I am actually in love with a brown-skinned Jew. And when I say I love him, I love him like I love little Abby. I love him like I love Gabe and Judah. I love him. And it offends me to the very core of my being when we have to dress like superheroes to get people to pay attention to him. It offends me to the very core of my being that we would have to rain down candy upon people to get them to show up for church and that we would think that that's okay. Everybody's doing it, you know. Everybody asked me, are you doing anything special for Easter? That's what they wanted to know. Was the baptism last week special for Easter? Was the trip to Kenya special for Easter? The trip to India before that special for Easter? The 23 nations before that special for Easter? Every day we live and testify to the resurrection. Do you really think putting on a different coat today is what honors God? I'd rather see you dress the same every day and be dressed in Christ. Corinthians 15 and verse 50, I declare to you, brothers, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. It's pretty troublesome if there's no resurrection. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. How many of you believe those words are true? You will not be changed then if you have not been changed now. This change precedes that change. If you've received Christ into your life, then he's resurrected you now as a testimony that he'll resurrect you then. But if you have not been resurrected now, spiritually speaking... You will never be resurrected physically, at least on the right side of things. A change now announces that your body will be changed then. So what is the testimony to the resurrection? It's your life. Oh, I told y'all in the beginning I wouldn't win theological awards for this. I can start in Genesis and show you the revel- I can show you all the way through to Revelation, the resurrection, and every section of the Bible. I can do it for fun. I can do it because I feel like it's the right thing to do today. But what I feel the Spirit telling me is that our lives need to match our doctrine. And maybe for some of you, you've elevated doctrine so high that it's become your master. I'm not nearly as interested in what you believe as what you do. Because I've learned people lie about what they believe. I believe the Lord will provide for me every month. And you bite your fingernails off believing that you're not going to get what you need. I believe the Lord will deliver me and you hide in fear in your homes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most revolutionary force on the planet. And His people, they love not their lives so much as to shrink back from death. They went into the furthest corners of the earth to bring the gospel as far as us. And the real believers of Jesus Christ are still doing the same thing. It left Jerusalem went to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And now from the ends of the earth, it's going to have to point back to Jerusalem. 
That's probably coming in our time, friends. Do you pray for Israel? Do you yearn for the nations? Or do we just want to eat our eggs? They have trouble believing in a physical resurrection or emphasizing it in their services because they're not seeing changed lives now. They'd rather have the Jonas brothers show up than Jesus. We cannot draw people with selfish ambition and then expect Christ-like transformation. Maybe selfish ambition of many of the leaders is the great problem. Maybe the people are just reflecting their pastors. James 3.16 says a really interesting thing. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find... What's that word? You'll find what? Now I know all the really strict denominational people think what we do is disorder. My God, somebody prophesied in tongues. Of course, 1 Corinthians 14, 26 says these things must be done. They've decided that's not orderly. But what is orderly is to have Dumbo drop. What is orderly is to give away plasma TVs. Let's not have the Spirit of God show up where there'll be searing conviction. Let's not have the Spirit of God show up where men might actually be changed Let's give them milk chocolate. We could call it the Gospels of the Hershey Kiss, if you like. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. Did Jesus build a mega ministry? Do you think he could not have manifested plasma TVs if he wanted to? Apparently his goal was not to build a mega ministry to build a ministry where there was a sold-out remnant that would go reach their brothers around the world. Speaking of leaders, Francis Asbury and Thomas Koch were friends of John Wesley. They came to America to spread the Methodist movement. When they received the title, Bishop, from their followers... Wesley wrote to them these words. This may surprise you. Sweet John Wesley. Mild-mannered John Wesley. I studied to be little. You studied to be great. I creep. You strut along. Do not seek to be something. Let me be nothing. And Christ be all in all. How can you, how dare you, suffer yourselves to be called bishop? I shudder. I start to shudder at every thought. Men may call me a knave or a fool or a rascal or a scoundrel and I will be content with that. But they shall never by my consent call me a bishop. (laughs) What do you think he would say today? You know, the very men that we have held up as doctrinal standards... They would be disgusted with what we've done with their work. 1 Corinthians 2 is my doctrinal standard. Is this fair enough? 1 Corinthians 2 in verse 1. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. I'm shocked there was no giant amen there. <laughs> For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Do you mean Paul did not understand the need to draw a crowd with candy? 
Why didn't he have Spider-Man show up at Corinth and help him? Or Superman? In the end, we can have them all bow to Jesus. It'll be beautiful, you know. Except it has nothing to do with the gospel. It's carnality. And we love it. We love it. We love it. We love it. And we build bigger churches every year doing it. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Do you know that the way missions reaches around the world is not with superior bank accounts? It's not rolling in, having all of the answers to all of their problems right here in a check. It's showing up and putting yourself at their mercy, eating what they eat, sleeping where they sleep, showering where they shower, and saying, you and I are from different parts of the world and we have the same need and it's not electricity. We have the same need and it's not indoor plumbing. All of those things may be great in in and by themselves, but your very great need is your sinful nature has got to get crucified with Christ. This is the Christian movement. Not bunnies. I don't know who bought the flowers. They're pretty. I won't pick on them today. Let's just say they're a symbol of life. Isn't that what you are? Are you a sign of the resurrection? Are you a sign of the resurrection? I am one. I hope you are. If we are not, then how can we be the church of Jesus Christ? I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with what? A demonstration of the Spirit's power. So Paul was just the Holy Ghost magician, right? He and David Blaine. He probably put himself in a box on the steeple of the church and he stayed there for 40 days without eating just to show people, right? Is is that what we're talking about here? Are we talking about the power of the gospel to enter into a pagan life and resurrect it for the glory of God so that men who once cursed God now would give their lives for him. See, it's the power of the resurrection. In the charismatic circles, we like to say it's speaking in tongues and it's a... (laughs) Those are trinkets, friends. It's beautiful. I love them. I speak in tongues more than most of you do. But the power of the gospel is displayed in a changed life, not the manifestation of a gift. In fact, I've seen the manifestation of a gift in thoroughly despicable lives many times. Because God is full of grace. So that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom or finances or gimmicks or ploys, but on God's power. How many of you got friends? Raise your hand if you got friends. I bet you got a bunch of friends on Facebook. Do you know them? Well, I answered their friend request. That was our introduction. We're the most connected in human history and yet somehow or another the most disconnected, aren't we? Job had some friends. What have you heard about Job's friends? Man, you don't need friends if your friends like Job's friends. Job's friends are special characters, man. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar. And Elihu, the young man. You know, Job was full of great questions. 
Look at Job 9 with me. I know it's almost time and you want out of here. I'm not through with you yet. You know, I was preaching a Methodist service some years ago and I was talking about the baptism in the Holy Ghost and the pastor was hiding under the pew. Some of his people got up at the one hour mark and were walking out in total disgust. I said, it's all right, pastor, don't be ashamed. They walked out on Jesus too. Pastor came up to me afterwards and he said, how many of them walked out? When Jesus taught the truth, he reduced thousands to 12 over and over and over. Operation Dumbo Drop was when he fed the multitudes, but then said, unless you eat my flesh, you have no part in this ministry. He didn't mind whittling down the crowd because he wanted those who were sold out, not those who were complete worldly sellouts. Are you in Job 9? I finally found Job 9. That means we can move forward. Since I am already found guilty, 929. Since I am already found guilty, why should I struggle in vain? Even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with washing soda, you would plunge me into a slimy pit so that even my clothes would detest me. Is Job whining? Job's whining, isn't he? This is the cry of a guilty man. At least he knew he was guilty. I bet his testimony wasn't, I've always been a good boy. He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there were someone to arbitrate between us, someone to lay his hand upon both of us. He's crying out for a mediator. Someone to remove God's rod from me so that his terror would frighten me no more. Can you imagine that Job is in the audience? He showed up at your service hoping to figure out who the arbitrator is. Hoping to be touched by God. And what do you do? You dress in a Power Ranger uniform and dance around like an idiot. Oh, the modern gospel. It'd be funny if it wasn't so sad. I know what we could do. We could invite him to our Easter cantata and pelt him with eggs. What if he met just one person who said, Job, I felt exactly like you did. Everywhere I looked, all I could see was my guilt. It was choking me. And you know what happened? The resurrected Christ spoke to me. He told me to leave my life of sin, and he's been giving me the power to do it ever since. I've been reading his word and becoming more like him every day. And if he did it for me, he'll do it for you. Job had good questions. Job 14. Turn to 14 and verse 14. If a man dies, will he live again? All the days of my hard service, I will wait for my renewal to come. Lord, is it really possible that if I'm dead, I could be raised again? Job had the best questions. How about Job 19? 19 and verse 21. Have pity on me, my friends. Have pity on me. For the hand of God has struck me. Why do you pursue me as God does? Will you never get enough of my flesh? 
How did he feel about his friends? He's begging for mercy. Oh, that my words were recorded, that they were written in a scroll, that they would be inscribed with an iron tool on lead or engraved in a rock forever. I know that my Redeemer lives. And then in the end, he will stand upon the earth. Job's friends are beating on him. They're kicking a man who is thoroughly down. See, we can ignore the sin problem by raining candy on it, or we can exacerbate the sin problem by saying, you dirty people down there. But Job did have one decent friend. Elihu was a young man, and he was not worthy of speaking. So he waited till every other man had spoken. It's amazing how God uses the humble. In Job 42, verse 7, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar are all rebuked. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends. How many friends? This is Eliphaz, Zophar, and Bildad. God is angry. You know who God was not angry with? Never mentioned? Elihu. Let us look at what Elihu said. Perhaps it will be instructive for us today. We'll be in Job 32. Have you given up on the message? Is your salvation so worn out that you got to stand up? It hurts. Are you sitting on it? In Job 32, in verse 18, mind you, especially you dispensationalists out there of which you cannot count me in your number. This is in the old dispensation. This is before the age of grace and mercy and the moving of the Holy Ghost and all those things that theologians have done to box God in in every age. I personally believe He was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that while the world changes around us, He has never changed. Not one iota. He was not vengeful in the Old Testament, merciful in the New. He's the same God in both. Ask Ananias and Sapphira. Job 32 and verse 18 from a man under the old times. For I am full of words and the spirit within me compels me. Is the Holy Ghost compelling you? Are you full of his word or have you neglected your duties as a priest? This young man had heard all he could hear. Things were going wrong and he refused to go wrong with them. The spirit inside him compelled him. Inside I am like bottled up wine, like new wine skins ready to burst. The young man had something inside that was going to erupt because he saw people mishandling the things of God. Can you really go about your day like you don't know anything different than when you walked in here? Oh, to each their own which is another way of saying I don't care if they all go to hell as long as I get to lunch on time. Or is something beginning to boil inside of you? See, I'm living like Elihu. Something's about to boil over. I must speak and find relief. I must open my lips and reply. I will show partiality to no one, nor will I flatter any man. For if I were skilled in flattery, my maker would soon take me away. 
wonder how many pastors can say that. But now, Job, listen to my words. Pay attention to everything I say. I am about to open my mouth. My words are on the tip of my tongue. My words come from an upright heart. My lips sincerely speak what I know. The Spirit of God has made me. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. Answer me then if you can. Prepare yourself and confront me. I am just like you before God. I too have been taken from clay. He's addressing a brother who is kicked and is down, but has begun to charge God with error. He's listened to all of Job's friends, beat on Job, but nobody present the answer. This is what it feels like to imagine yourself a sinner in today's church world. How many churches would you have to visit before you truly had an encounter with the living God? Look at verse 23. Yet if there is an angel on his side as a mediator, one out of a thousand to tell a man what is right for him. The word angel is malak. It means a messenger. Is there a messenger on a man's side to show him what is right? Job had cried out for an arbitrator. He had cried out for somebody to lay his hand upon Job's shoulder and God's. And Elihu says, there is such a one. One out of a thousand. He can show you what's right for you, Job. To be gracious to him and say, spare him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom for him. Job wanted to know if his friends would have pity on him. He wanted to know if someone could remove God's rod of terror from him. Elihu said, there is somebody who's found a ransom for you. What does the world need to know that there's plasma TVs found at church or that a ransom's been paid for their life? What does the world need to know that they are hopelessly lost and that no one can show them the right way? Or do they need to know that there is a messenger standing beside them to tell them there is a right way? I have found a ransom for him. Then his flesh is renewed like a child's. It is restored as in the days of his youth. He prays to God and finds favor. He sees God's face and shouts for joy. He is restored by God to his righteous state. He needed to know that somebody had found favor with God and there was a resurrection. Elihu, we know nothing about him except he was young and inexperienced. Maybe that was the key. Maybe he was not like the old prophet, corrupted in his ways, out for selfish gain, jealous of anyone with an anointing. The young man is the only one who gave Job good advice. And listen to how he finishes. Then he comes to men and says, I sinned. And perverted what is right. But I did not get what I deserved. Tell me, is that salvation by grace? He redeemed my soul from going down to the pit. And I will live to enjoy the light. That's resurrection now and in the age to come. God does all these things to a man twice, even three times. He turns back his soul from the pit that the light of life may shine upon him. In Elihu, we see the hope of the gospel. And friends, this is thousands of years before Jesus has shown up. 
God's method has always been the same. He's anointed men who are compelled by the Spirit to speak when others shut up. He's appointed men who will testify to the truth and not flatter their hearers. He's appointed men to testify to His resurrection. We're going to close, but go with me to John 5. It's the pre-closing close. We're on the downhill slide of the service. In John 5, pick up with me in verse 19. Jesus gave them this answer. I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, to your amazement, he will show him even greater things than these. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover... The Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. There's a day coming when it is too late. We found that out in Luke 16. It was too late for the rich man to cross over into life. But Jesus says there is a day coming and has now come. When you hear him, you can cross from death to life. Do you know how he proved that truth? In Hebrews 7.15, says that he was chosen. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears. Verse 16. One who has become a priest not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. How did Jesus prove that he had the right to tell you you could cross from death to life? He did it himself. His life couldn't be destroyed. I can show you the resurrection in Genesis 3. I can show you the resurrection in Genesis 22. I can show you Abraham's faith in the resurrection when he carries Isaac up. But what difference does it make if the resurrection doesn't reside in you and the people that are around you? See, we're supposed to have an indestructible life, not one that can be overcome by the wrong party's administration. Not one that can be overcome by a downturn economically. Not one that can be overcome if it rains on the day that you go to church. One that is indestructible, faces all the power of hell, and yet walks in the life of the living God. Church, we don't need Easter egg drops. Our candy apple Christians are powder puff prophets. We need real, ordinary men and women who are filled with an extraordinary God. And you can say, I know He rose because I have risen and will yet rise again. I'm a sign of the resurrection. What are you? 
Are you a sign of the resurrection? If you're a sign of the resurrection, then it's incumbent upon you to get where people can see you. Nobody takes a sign or a light or a lamp and hides it under a bushel. In Acts 4, in verse 2, the whole city was greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They weren't just teaching that Jesus raised from the dead. What were they teaching? In Christ, you raised from the dead. Now and later. Today and tomorrow. You raise from the dead when you are baptized and bury the old life and you come out in the newness of Christ. You raise from the dead when they strike this body down. And Christ raises you back up again. He's the firstborn from among the dead. Who will be his brothers? Who will be his brothers? You're either in the church of the firstborn or you're not. Miss Washington Post has got a real problem. She can't identify what Christianity is, so she thinks it's divided. It's not divided. She's trying to mix sheep and goats and iron and clay and oil and water. Dr. Sponge or whatever his name is not in the body of Christ. There have been liars like him since the first century, no matter how sincerely he believes it. First, second, third John call it the spirit of the Antichrist. You cannot be both Antichrist and Christ, friends, no matter how sincerely you believe it. So in Mark 16, in the first verse, We see a testimony to the resurrection. When the Sabbath was over, and your day here is almost over, friends, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they could go to anoint Jesus' body. They were going to memorialize His death. And that's what a lot of Christians do. They testify to the fact that Jesus died. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb. Come on, when you go to a graveyard, what do you expect to see? How surprised would you be if you showed up to visit somebody's grave and it was open and they had walked out and angels testified to it? And when you told people, Would you accept it if they said, oh, well, I understand it in a metaphorical sense. No, you either saw stones rolled away or didn't. There was either a body in there decaying or there was one alive and walking around. There is no middle ground here. There is no room for compromise here. It's not an issue to just all get along with, you know. It's the linchpin of Christianity. He didn't raise himself. He can't raise you. And we're to be pitied more than all of men. Corinthians 15 says it. They asked each other, who will roll away the stone from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. I want you to understand, we do not need to be in the business of putting stones in front of the view of the empty tomb. God is in the business of rolling them away. He said through the prophet Isaiah in the 56th chapter, prepare, prepare. Build up the way. Remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Our God 
wants us to display the resurrected life. I'm not going to roll eggs in front of it or chocolate bunnies shaped like Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to trivialize the most important event in human history by dressing like superheroes. Most importantly, I don't think we should abdicate our responsibility to be the billboard of the resurrection. Are you a sign of the resurrection? I am. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in white robes sitting on the right side. What side? And they were alarmed. Listen to what he tells them. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. Fred Hall greeted me today and he said he's risen. And I responded, risen, risen indeed. The first century of Christianity, this is how people greeted each other. He is risen, risen indeed. And your life was expected to show it. He is risen, yes, risen indeed. You can see it in me. You can see it in him. The lives are the testimony to the empty grave. I'm saying, church, let's get on our feet and advertise the resurrection. Stand up.